welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Three cases this week, and I've got a bit of a cold. Apologies if I sound nasally, but the show must go on. Before the show does go on, I want to make you all aware of an upcoming T-Visa training by the T-Visa expert, Helen Tarokik. I myself attended her training last month, and am now putting together a T-Visa in a tough case. She's really good. The training is called, Is This a T-Visa? and will be held on January 27th, 2023, from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. Eastern Standard. I imagine over Zoom, like the last training. Helen and team will tell you all about how to prepare and file T visas and will answer your questions about whether your fact pattern will be enough for a T and how to address potential weaknesses. Links to sign up in the show notes. And make sure to use the promo code PODCAST. I'm told it's a free training. You have nothing to lose. Back to the show. And huge thanks to Eddie and Liz for stepping in last week. That Ninth Circuit decision was a bear. Before getting to the cases, I wanted to talk a bit about Capital Good Fund. Millions of families seeking to improve their immigration status face financial barriers due to the high cost of legal services. Nonprofit Capital Good Fund is working to make these resources available to all, especially those who would not otherwise qualify for traditional loans. Certified CDFI Capital Good Fund is partnering with attorneys to provide the financial services that families need. They offer affordable financing with no closing fees or down payments for those working with attorneys to move their case forward and to get attorneys out of the accounts receivable business. To learn more about the program, email immigration at goodfund.us or call 866-584-3651 and tell them who sent you.
First up is Salguero Sosa v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on December 16th, 2022. The Ninth Circuit coming in clutch on Friday with a win to start off the episode. This case is about past persecution. And I must say, it's a bit of a unique one, at least for me, as Mr. Salguero Sosa's asylum claim, which he brought in immigration court, is based on the fact that he is a citizen of Guatemala, quote, who suffers from dwarfism and who advocated in Guatemala for increased legal protections for dwarfs, end quote. He claimed that he had suffered and feared persecution in Guatemala, quote, on account of his political opinion and his membership in two particular social groups, dwarfs in Guatemala and human rights defenders in Guatemala. End quote. The immigration judge and the BIA denied his claims, finding many things. This decision, however, comes down to past persecution. Because if, contrary to what the agency found, Mr. Salguero Sosa suffered past persecution in Guatemala, then the burden shifted to DHS to rebut his asylum eligibility in immigration court, which DHS never had to do because the agency never held that the burdens had flipped which would therefore require a remand by the Ninth Circuit. So what happened to Mr. Salguero Sosa in Guatemala that the IJ and the BIA deemed not to constitute past persecution? To be honest, the Ninth Circuit doesn't get into the details of it really at all. Rather, the Ninth Circuit summarizes that Mr. Salguero Sosa suffered the following, quote, 1. Educational mistreatment by his father, peers, and teachers. 2. Employment barriers, including discriminatory hiring practices, denial of raises and career advancement opportunities, and derogatory comments made by his superiors. 3. Several assaults and robberies, including one in which he was brutally beaten at gunpoint. 4. Death threats from anonymous callers. 5. Social mistreatment, including his then-girlfriend's family forcing her to have an abortion because they did not want her to risk having a dwarf child. And six, his and his brother's mistreatment at a state-run hospital, where his brother, who was also a dwarf, died due to what Mr. Salguero Sosa contends was inadequate medical care, end quote. To the Ninth Circuit, while it's possible that these harms individually might not rise to the level of past persecution, the Ninth Circuit noted that it recently held in Sharma v. Garland, episode 69, that, quote, when determining whether a petitioner's past mistreatment rises to the level of persecution, the BIA must apply cumulative effect review, end quote. I believe Liz and I noted how big a deal that was at the time, as the cumulative effect analysis is traditionally more applicable to deciding torture for Convention Against Torture purposes, not persecution for asylum and a big deal it is now for Mr. Salguero Sosa. Want a crystal clear quote? Why not? Quote, The BIA must conduct a cumulative effect review when assessing a petitioner's claim of past persecution. End quote. Watch out for that quote on social media, everyone. I am a shameless slave to the likes. Shameless, I say. Here, the IJ and the BIA clearly failed to do the cumulative effect analysis. For example, the IJ analyzed each incident of harm and concluded, quote, in every instance, what the respondent may have experienced was nothing greater than discrimination focused on him, end quote. Double emphasis by the Ninth Circuit. That language will not cut it in the best coast. And start arguing this cumulative harm standard for past persecution throughout the circuits. All of that means that asylum and withholding of removal must go back to the BIA, and likely, the IJ, for the proper analysis. 
Not only that, in a podcast favorite circuit split, the Ninth Circuit held something that oil itself had to concede. Quote, the BIA also erred by applying an incorrect nexus requirement to Mr. Salguero Sosa's withholding of removal claim. The nexus requirement for withholding of removal is less demanding than that for asylum. In asylum cases, petitioners must show that one of the five enumerated categories is at least one central reason for their persecution. For withholding of removal by contrast, petitioners need only show that one of the five enumerated categories is a reason for their persecution. The phrase a reason includes weaker motives than one central reason. End quote. Sorry for the long quotes on this case, but they really do speak for themselves. In applying the same nexus standard for both asylum and withholding of removal, the BIA was applying its own precedent in matter of CTL, but the Ninth Circuit has said that that's wrong, so CTL doesn't apply in the Ninth Circuit. Ah, immigration. Double remand on withholding of removal. Although the Ninth Circuit did not remand for further convention against torture analysis, asylum and withholding are going back. Godspeed, Mr. Salguero Sosa. And that means congratulations to Sylvia L. Esparza for petitioner. And that is Salguero Sosa v. Garland. Next is Escobar v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on December 15th, 2022. This case is about alienage and Convention Against Torture protection. Mr. Escobar is from Honduras and was brought to the United States at an age so young that he can't remember when or how it happened. He also, quote, struggled with mental illness, having been diagnosed with schizophrenia, and he has a significant criminal record, end quote. Indeed, it appears that the U.S. government may not even have been able to establish alienage, that is, that Mr. Escobar is not from the United States, but for the fact that Mr. Escobar's mother was prosecuted for taking the identity of a U.S. citizen and as part of that prosecution admitted that nearly all of her children, including Mr. Escobar, were born in Honduras. More on that in a bit. A lengthy and serious criminal record followed, almost surely due, at least in significant part, to Mr. Escobar's serious psychological illness. In fact, DHS, quote, initiated removal proceedings against Mr. Escobar while he was serving a term of involuntary commitment at a Missouri mental health facility, end quote. What should the U.S. do with people like Mr. Escobar, people who grew up entirely in the United States but who are here without authorization and have serious mental health illnesses? I'm not sure many Americans have thought about the question. U.S. immigration law, however, is very clear. In removal proceedings and without any real path to stay in this country, Mr. Escobar applied for protection under the Convention Against Torture. Specifically, Mr. Escobar, quote, pointed to his schizophrenia and the inhumane conditions to which he would be subject within Honduran prisons and mental health hospitals, end quote. The IJ didn't bite, and the BIA affirmed. So to the Eighth Circuit it went. And really, I gave short shrift to Mr. Escobar's whole alienage argument above. It was a main argument. Mr. Escobar's attorney filed a motion to terminate an immigration court, arguing that DHS couldn't establish that Mr. Escobar was in fact a citizen of Honduras, and was not a citizen of the United States. And that is always DHS's initial burden in removal proceedings. 
That's 8 CFR section 1240.8 A and C, by the way. For those of you interested in denying charges and allegations in the NTA and putting DHS to its initial burden. Sometimes the DHS Form I-213 will suffice, but here, the IJ didn't rely just on that. After all, an I-213 is simply DHS's own allegations, and while maybe that'd be sufficient in the usual case where unrebutted by the non-citizen, Mr. Escobar is not the usual case. He suffers from schizophrenia, and it appears everyone agrees that his testimony, or lack thereof, can't really be used to prove much. Interesting issue. And Mr. Escobar has a case, and a clever counsel. Quote, for example, the birth certificates provided by DHS included inconsistencies in name and date of birth, and Mr. Escobar insists that the form of the birth certificates indicates possible fraud. Further, Mr. Escobar argues that the sworn statements by Maria Escobar, his alleged mother, are inherently unreliable because she later admitted to using a false identity. End quote. I'll bite. The Eighth Circuit recognized the issues, but disagreed. Unlike in asylum applications where evidentiary inconsistencies often destroy cases for non-citizens, here, with DHS's evidence, quote, while some of the evidence includes undeniable inconsistencies, it is all probative of Mr. Escobar's alienage, end quote. And to be fair, Mr. Escobar never rebutted the evidence. More importantly, under the BIA's decision in matter of DR, IJs are permitted to make permissible inferences from evidence, and quote, an inference is not impermissible as long as it is supported by record facts or even a single fact, viewed in the light of common sense and ordinary experience, end quote. Seems like a quote that cuts both ways, no matter who is presenting the evidence. True. The BIA did indeed state in matter of Guavera from 1990 that, quote, the government had not established the respondent's removability by clear and convincing evidence when the government relied on nothing more than the respondent's silence in the face of questioning, end quote. Good to remember. But here, there was more to establish alienage, said the court. As the Eighth Circuit held that the IJ was permitted to make inferences from the birth certificates, the sworn statement from Mr. Escobar's mother, and Mr. Escobar's silence, the court then held that the record didn't compel reversal on the question of Mr. Escobar's alienage. This in addition to the fact that at least at certain points in the past, Mr. Escobar seems to have said and believed that his mother was his mother, meaning to the court that her statements about his birth are a bit more probative. Turning then to cat deferral. Always difficult when based on allegations that a country's prisons or mental health facilities torture people. Lots of BIA and circuit precedent holding otherwise with very little circuit precedent to support. None that I'm aware of in the 8th Circuit. But who knows? Not met here. The reason is, for example, that in the 8th Circuit, an applicant, quote, may not obtain relief under the cat unless he can show that his prospective torturer has the goal or intent of inflicting severe physical or mental pain or suffering upon him, end quote. Plus, it's got to be a government torturer or a torture that the government acquiesces to. In this case, quote, before the IJ and the BIA, Mr. Escobar insisted that upon his removal to Honduras, he would be screamed at, publicly mocked, stoned, and even raped or beaten at the hands of prison and hospital staff because of his severe mental illness, end quote. But the Eighth Circuit and all other tribunals involved 
held that even if true, quote, those conditions are due to lack of resources rather than a specific intent to cause severe pain or suffering, end quote. So Mr. Escobar loses. Appears he was brought to the United States at six months old. By the way, back to burdens and arguments for non-citizens. In rejecting Mr. Escobar's challenge to DHS's inconsistent evidence, the Eighth Circuit deemed it important to note that, quote, any inconsistencies speak to the weight of the evidence, not its admissibility, end quote. Okay? And in fact, all tribunals eventually relied on these inconsistent documents in this case. Now, I am aware that testimonial inconsistencies may be treated a bit differently under the Real ID Act for credibility purposes. But for documentary inconsistencies, like, say, affidavits and medical reports so often cast aside in asylum decisions discussed on this podcast, this seems like an important quote, and an important case to keep handy. Remember, just like a non-citizen applying for asylum, DHS had the burden here to establish alienage and it did so according to the courts sufficiently based on faulty and admittingly inconsistent documentary evidence. In fact, DHS's burden was arguably higher here, clear and convincing. Still met. Give this case a read, Eighth Circuit attorneys. Turn it into a weapon on credibility. And that is Escobar v. Garland. That brings us to Platero Rosales v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on December 15th, 2022. The court opens with, quote, A sovereign isn't a sovereign if it can't control its borders, end quote. To the court, this was important framing for the issue at hand in absentia orders of removal. Ms. Platero Rosales is from El Salvador and appears to have entered the U.S. without authorization about 15 years ago. She did not appear for a hearing and was ordered removed in absentia. She moved to reopen that removal order 15 years later, alleging that she never received proper notice of her hearing. But, said the court, quote, it's undisputed that she never provided an address where she could be notified, end quote. Ms. Platero Rosales' main argument was that she didn't know that she was supposed to update her address with the immigration authorities because she was not informed of that obligation in Spanish, the only language that she spoke at the time. The IJ and the BIA denied Ms. Platero Rosales' motion to reopen, as did the Fifth Circuit, if the opening sentence wasn't a giveaway. And oh, by the way, the notice to appear was deficient. It didn't have all the information required of INA Section 239A about Ms. Platero Rosales' first hearing. Which really seems to likely be the impetus for all of Ms. Platero Rosales' motioning in the first place. The whole Ms. Chavez-Pereira issue that the podcast is always discussing. As I've mentioned, what needs to happen with in absentia orders of removal in the Fifth Circuit where the NTA doesn't have the date, time, or location of the first hearing has been subject to fierce panel debate in the Fifth. But the initial decision of the Fifth Circuit, Rodriguez v. Garland, withstood an en banc challenge, meaning that in absentia removal orders must be reopened in the Fifth Circuit if begun by deficient NTAs. Kind of because later panels narrowed that holding to essentially only apply where the non-citizen provides his or her proper address to immigration authorities. 
It's a bit unclear to me why those two things, DHS complying with INA Section 239A and serving an NTA, and the non-citizen providing an address, but to the Fifth Circuit, they are. Ms. Platero Rosales received the deficient NTA. She also appears not to have provided a valid address where she could receive a follow-up hearing notice. Under Fifth Circuit precedent, therefore, and until the Supreme Court inevitably steps in, she loses. She also loses in the Eleventh Circuit, by the way, but not the Ninth, I would argue strongly. Or, in the words of the Fifth Circuit decision limiting Rodriguez, Spagnol Bastos v. Garland, episode 84, Ms. Platero Rosales' failure to provide a valid address, notwithstanding DHS's failure to serve her with a compliant NTA, means that she, quote, forfeits her right to notice and cannot seek to reopen the removal proceedings and rescind the in absentia removal order for lack of notice, end quote. Hence, Ms. Platero Rosales' argument that she wasn't properly made aware of the address requirement because the NTA was neither provided to her nor read to her in Spanish, the only language she understood. Two problems with that argument, said the Fifth Circuit. First, the NTA noted that it was read to her in Spanish, and Ms. Platero Rosales didn't present evidence that showed otherwise. But perhaps more consequentially for non-citizens everywhere, quote, there is no legal basis to conclude that the United States was required to provide her with notice in Spanish. Nothing in the statute requires notice in any other language, end quote. I believe there might have been such a requirement with the NTA predecessor orders to show cause, but I could be wrong. Regardless, not so with post-1997 NTAs. According to the fifth, all circuits who have addressed the issue agree that, quote, due process allows notice of a hearing to be given solely in English to a non-English speaker if the notice would have put a reasonable recipient on notice that further inquiry is required. And that condition is obviously met when an individual is presented with a document from a United States border official concerning her eligibility to enter and remain in the country, end quote. In conclusion, the Fifth Circuit states in full, quote, the common national language of the United States is English. Our laws are printed in English, and our legislatures conduct their business in English. Ms. Platero Rosales has no legal basis to complain that her notice to appear was in English. We deny the petition for review. End quote. Here's Chief Judge Richmond in concurrence. Chief Judge Richmond concurred mainly to explain why the address requirement is so important, that is, a non-citizen providing immigration officials with his or her address, even when proceedings are initiated through a deficient NTA. The Chief Judge also wrote to reconcile the Fifth Circuit's recent decisions in this realm. Namely, Chief Judge Richmond explained, helpfully I might add, the difference between Rodriguez and all the other decisions that followed. To the Chief, Mr. Rodriguez provided DHS with his address, and then received a notice to appear in the mail that lacked the date, time, and location of his first hearing. By the time EOIR sent the notice of hearing, he had moved, but not updated his address. According to Rodriguez and the chief judge's reading, those facts require reopening of the in absentia order of removal. But in all other cases that the Fifth Circuit has now addressed, the non-citizen was unable to show that they initially provided the U.S. government with a valid address. So they lost. So show that your client provided DHS with a sufficient address, and I guess you get your client's in absentia order of removal reopened in the Fifth Circuit, right?
Well, I must admit, I wrote that last sentence before I finished reading Chief Judge Richmond's concurrence, because how could Chief Judge Richmond say otherwise? Well, it appears that Chief Judge Richmond might not actually be saying that. It seems, but I'm a bit unclear, that the chief doesn't like the Rodriguez decision at all, and would argue that it's not good law because it didn't consider the effect of the INA's address requirements on in absentia reopening. Which means, I don't know, Mr. Rodriguez wouldn't even win under Chief Judge Richmond's statutory reading? I believe all of that was resolved by the en banc fight over Rodriguez, so Chief Judge Richmond can't be saying that. Chief Judge Richmond must be saying what I just said, right? Submit evidence to show that your client provided their address to DHS in the Fifth Circuit and file your motions to reopen in absentia orders of removal, citing Chief Judge Richmond in concurrence. And remember that well-drafted affidavits are evidence. And that is Platero Rosales v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.